2: welcome to the table I'm Darrell Bach executive director for cultural engagement at the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary made up of podcasts dinners and cultural engagement chapels the table podcast treats subjects about God life and culture with reflection on how to engage these issues in the tensions of life that they raise our hope is to encourage thoughtful engagement from a Christian perspective And our hope is in addition that these will prove beneficial to you as you think about how to discuss with your friends and neighbors these topics. This specific podcast deals with life as a woman in the context of Islam. We're interviewing a person whom we've called Miriam and whose voice we have disguised who grew up actually in a mixed home. Uh, as, as a child, a mixed uh, Christian and Islamic home, but went to Islamic school as a child. And so she reviews her experience growing up in the context of, of Islam as a Muslim. Uh, it's important to understand a little bit about Islam before we uh, engage in the interview, so I thought I would review the five pillars of Islam that that make up the core of the Islamic faith as taught in the Quran, The first is the testimony of faith, that is that there is no God but Allah. This of course is an affirmation of the Islamic view of God that denies the existence of the Trinity and denies that Jesus is divine. The second pillar is the pillar of prayer, praying five times a day. Uh, The third pillar is what is called giving zakat, which is support for the needy. The fourth pillar is the fast during the month of Ramadan. That's a special holiday season in uh, the Islamic faith. And the fifth pillar is the pilgrimage to Mecca, known as the Hajj. Everyone at some point of their life is supposed to take uh, a journey to Mecca. Of course, the key scripture for Islam is the Quran. Most people don't realize that it went through two phases, one a less violent phase, and then as Islam was not meeting acceptance, it became more violent as a faith, so that the total Quran has elements of um, affirmation about about violence in it. This is the background of the core elements of Islamic faith that feed into the interview that we're going to be um, uh, engaged in, and we think that you'll find the conversation with Miriam, a fascinating one, about what life is like inside the context of being a Muslim.
0: Well, growing up in the Middle East, it's very hard to um, separate culture from the religion. There were a lot of things, for example, that um, we dealt with as far as the culture was concerned, like arranged marriage. Um, According to Islam, my dad did not have the right to force me to marry. However, in the Middle Eastern culture, um, my dad had the right to choose a husband for me and to force me to get married. So there is a, a big, huge misconception, I think, here in the Middle East, in the United States between the culture and the religion. Uh, naturally, with the religion, I grew up thinking that I had a lot of rights in Islam. I had the right to choose my husband. I had the right to education. I had the right... Um, to uh, you know, to, to be a um, a school teacher or to be a professional, and um, you know, to be a wife, and so there is a difference between the Arab culture and uh, the religion, and I, I think a lot of what happens um, as we look at the Middle East, we think that what. Is culture is actually religion, and it's not. There's a big difference between the two.
2: Okay, that's a very interesting way to lead off. So I'm gonna let I'm gonna let you develop that a little bit more. Okay. Um, uh, what aspects would you say are a reflection of Arab culture, and which aspects would you say are a reflection of, of Islam?
0: Well, you know, certainly in the Islamic religion, the Sharia law requires that a woman wears head covering, and a woman uh, uh, prays five times a day, just like anybody else. Um, there are certain parts of the religion, for example, Muhammad said that women Uh, Lack religion and lack knowledge and the reason why they lack religion and lack knowledge is because They think emotionally and so they don't they don't um, They don't think cognitively uh, because they put their emotions in it And so he said that and then he said that they lack religion Because of the fact that women cannot pray during their menstrual cycle during uh, the 40 days after having a child and so um, he says that they lack religion in that respect so there is that you know as far as religion and he did say that most of the women uh, or most of the the dwellers of hell are going to be women because they gossip and they are not very appreciative at least that was his explanation his uh, explanation of why women are most of the most of the hell dwellers are going to be women um, so in that regard, that is that is religion, but as far as not being able to uh, go to school, for, for example, when the Taliban came and took over in Afghanistan, they would not allow women to become teachers. They, they basically shut the doors of schools and they let women stop being um, doctors because that was just their culture. It had nothing to do with religion
2: interesting so so we've got a distinction between well, well we've got a distinction that really does impact and i think most uh, americans are aware of this does impact the role of women uh, in both in arab culture and in islam and the two would it be fair to say that the two play off of each other to a certain extent that there's a certain position or role that women have in the context of islam that has fed the way the culture uh, also treats women
0: absolutely and i think there was a an aspect of the culture that um, Islam came and kind of sanctified a little bit, because um, according to the Arab culture, pre-Islamic times, they had the right to bury their daughters alive because of the honor and shame system. You know, we talk about honor killing, and we hear about honor killing Um, in the Middle East, but that has nothing to do with religion. It has absolutely nothing to do with religion. Now, according to the Islamic religion, they have the right to kill me as a woman, but they have the right to kill any man as well for converting, Mm -hmm. uh, to become an apostate. If you leave the religion, then you have the right to be killed, and it doesn't matter whether you're a man or a woman. However, in the Middle Eastern culture, they have a right to kill their daughters even today for dishonoring the family, for shaming the family. Family. So that has a lot to do with the culture and not to do with the religion.
2: Okay, well you've brought up a few things here that let me let me help people with. Um, the Sharia law, explain what that is.
0: The Sharia law is really very if I can simplify it to the absolute max. The Sharia law says that you are to follow first what the Quran says. And if it's not written in the Quran, then you go to the Hadith, which are the sayings of Muhammad and the life of Muhammad. And if that's not written in there, if there's nothing, a a particular topic that's written in there, then you go to the leaders, the Muslim leaders, and they decide based on principle. So... You know, for example, the issue of a woman driving. First you go to the Quran and you decide is it written in the Quran whether a woman can drive or not?
2: Okay, well I'd imagine there are no cars in the Quran. There so. are no cars. Okay, okay.
0: <laughs> and then you then you go to what Muhammad had said. Did Muhammad talk about you know a woman not driving a car or not being able to drive a car? Well he didn't, because <laughs> during this time right. there were no driving cars. So then you go back to the the Muslim leaders and then they decide based on the principles of what is found in the quran is it permissible for a woman to drive a car or not and there are some who've said yes and there are some who have said no
2: hmm. oh so so i guess you can sort of drive
0: you can sort of drive <laughs> depends on what country you live in
2: okay and then and then uh, l- let's talk a little bit about about growing up in a, in the context of islam what uh uh, talk about the week, okay? Um, for example, the holy day is a different day of the week sure. than uh, than either for Judaism or Christianity. So, could you explain that for people?
0: Sure. Um, you know, for Muslims, it's considered Friday. For Jews, it's considered Saturday, and for um, for Christians, it's considered Sunday. Um, and they believe that Friday is a holy day because that's you know that is the day they believe that God has set aside for Muslims to to worship and so.
2: Now, when you go to the mosque on on a on a holy day, on a Friday. Um, is this something that only men do, or do women go? And how does that how does that work?
0: Well, according to Sharia law, according to Islam, women are not obligated to go, but men are obli- obligated to go. Obviously, Islam is a very works based religion, mm-hmm. and so the more you do, the more points you have. For men, it's obligatory for them to go to the mosque and, and to pray in the mosque, actually even five times a day. It's it's very obligatory for them. For a woman, uh, Muhammad decided that it wasn't obligatory for a woman to go just because she had kids and young kids, and um, but she, she could go if she wanted to go. And there are even uh, sayings of Muhammad in history where um, he would have the women, you know, standing in the back and, and the men are in front. And the reason why he did that was because, you know, when a woman is bending down, he doesn't want a man behind her looking at her as she's bending down. So that's why women are to stand in the back and men are, are to stand in the front. Hmm. Um, and so when he had heard, when he would hear a child crying and he knew that a woman was in the back of the ranks, he would finish up the prayer very quickly because he knew the woman had to attend to her child. Hmm.
2: So now I've I've been uh, in Turkey uh, during time during during the week, and I actually actually remember having a meal right next to a mosque and watching the men in particular go in and wash before they go into the service. Now that's something we don't do in in Christianity. So explain what that's all about.
0: Sure. You know, it is required for Muslims to cleanse themselves before they go in and pray, and not only is it obligatory for men, but it's also obligatory for women. Um, A man has to completely wash up. um, If he has had relations with his wife the night before, he has to completely bathe himself. So there's a whole lot of cleansing. You have to go clean, basically, before God to pray.
2: I see. Yeah. Um, now, um, and why is it? This is a cultural question as well as a religion question. You know, a lot of the um, unrest that we've seen during the Arab Spring takes place on Fridays. At least some of the major events and marches and that kind of thing how does that work if 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 it's a holy day and i'm supposed to be ob- obligated to be at the mosque then how is it that friday ends up being the big protest day in arab
0: countries it's probably the time where imams gather pe- men the most mm-hmm. and oftentimes imams are talking about political issues and so when they talk about political issues and and they go into the mosque and these men hear about how we should protest they're gonna arouse people to do that and that's that's perfect timing for the imams to get people going so i think it's really led by a lot of imams
2: okay and and again explain what an imam who who an
0: imam is Mm -hmm. an imam is a muslim leader it's kind of like a pastor that preaches on sundays will they have an imam that speaks to them and and Provides the what they call the message, the khutbah, on Fridays.
2: Now, what is the relationship of an imam to the larger culture? What role do they play within the culture? Because that appears to be somewhat different than what we normally see here as well, in terms of the role of way a pastor might function in relationship to a culture here.
0: I think it's really different. It depends on which country you're living in again. I think in Saudi Arabia they have much more control over there. Um, than they would in other countries. But, you know, they certainly do have the power to motivate people and to encourage them to do certain things. And so, a lot of times, what these imams are talking about are political issues. And and oftentimes, they're talking about, well, is it permissible to do a certain thing that's not in the Quran, that's not in the Hadith? You know, people go and ask for advice and say, well, you know, my wife did this, what should I do? Or my husband did this, what should I do? And so, they're, they're really... They act as advisors, oftentimes, of what people should and shouldn't do, but but they, they are also motivators.
2: Okay, now what kinds of stereotypes uh, might Americans have about Muslims that uh, they ought not to have?
0: That they're all terrorists.
2: Okay. Because they're not all
0: terrorists. And I often tell people that if you... You know, if you look at Muslims as people who are here in America because of the same reasons why you came to America, to have a better life, to provide a better education for your kids, I I think it'll change everything. And I often say to my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, That God didn't pick us because we're something special. He picked us because He's something special. Mm -hmm. And so that levels the playing field. Mm -hmm. Um, Because we're not better than uh, Arabs. We're not better than Muslims. We're not better just because we live here in the United States. We are privileged and we are blessed by the Lord. But apart from the grace of God, I don't know why we're here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So.
2: Uh, so so Muslims are not terrorists. I tell you, when our time in Turkey when we were there, um, obviously a predominantly uh, Islamic country, almost no Christian presence to speak of at all, and we were Im- we were impressed by the hospitality that we received and the courtesy of people. Even when we were trying to get directions and didn't know the language, the people would make the effort to try and help us, and so. Um, talk a little bit about, about the kinds of Muslims one might meet uh, both here in the States and also perhaps if you were, found yourself in an Arab uh, country.
0: You know, that's very interesting that you say that, Dr. Bach, because um, I had heard a missionary woman that lived in a Middle Eastern country with her husband, and she stood up, and her testimony was that she felt like these Arab women were Jesus to her far more than a lot of her neighbors when she had lived in the United States. And Because they were kind to her, they were very helpful to her. Whenever she needed to go to the hospital, they came and they took her kids in. And so that's what you'll find with Arabs. Just because, for example, if you see a woman in the grocery store who's wearing a head covering, I promise you she doesn't have a bomb under that head covering. She Mm -hmm. just doesn't. Mm and um she may look different and and it may look intimidating to us but she's a woman that has the same needs as any other woman Mm -hmm. that is in the grocery store she's hungry she's trying to feed her kids she wants a better life for her kids she wants a better life for her family and so you'll find a lot of hospitality i um oftentimes work with a lot of refugees that come to the united states and I encourage women to go and, and minister to these women, and oftentimes these women from from the church will come to me and say, you know, it, it's amazing because I feel like they're ministering to me. Hmm. And so it, we just we have to open the door, God, God's heart, God's vision. The end goal is that every tribe, every tongue, every nation will bow their knee to the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's going to in- include a whole lot of Arabs and a whole lot of Muslims and a whole lot of uh, tribes from Middle Eastern countries.
2: All right, let's talk about a little bit about your your life growing up in in the context of uh, of Islam. What would you what would you say about that? How would you describe um, the way you were raised and what would be involved in your life and what was central to your life as you were growing up. Things that might – and why a way to help with the question might be to th- talk about things in particular that might be like growing up here and things that would be very different.
0: Well, you know, I think I grew up um, – it, it's a broad yeah, question. right, it is. So um, I think with – the similarities as far as, you know, growing up here and, and growing up in America versus growing up in the Middle East is, you know, I, I wanted to have an education, I wanted to be able to work, I wanted to be able to do those things. Obviously, the culture played a huge part in it, where my dad wanted to make sure I was married at a young age and I had my own home and had my own family. and. Um, and that was a big concern within the the Middle Eastern culture a big part of Islam and a big part of the Arab culture is the whole idea of marriage and the whole idea of raising a family and and being a mother that was that was very central in the Middle East and um, growing up as a Muslim and obviously it's all about works I mean I, I think if I can if I can say, you know, a, a big, huge comparison between Islam and Christianity, as far as the religions are concerned, As I grew up with no hope. I had no hope, no eternal hope. Um, but now I have hope. I have hope in the fact that Christ died on the cross for me. He made a way for me. He came down to me rather than me try to climb to Him to reach Him. Hmm. And that is a huge difference, I think. And, and so, the good works is based on my fear. Fear plays a big, huge role in Islam, whereas the Bible clearly says that there is no fear in love, that love casts out all fear. And so, I grew up fearful, fearful of God, fearful of how God may punish me, fearful of how God may feel about me, whereas in uh, Christianity, I, I have peace, the peace that passes all understanding. I have hope.
1: Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform.
2: Now, you you talked about the kind of hopes that you had in terms of an education and that kind of thing. Um, let's talk about one other element of, of Arab culture that I think is important that most people, I think, do not realize about many countries in the Middle East. may not be true across the board, but... And again, I'm I'm drawing on my own experience in the context of having spent some time in Turkey. Um, there is there are very religious oriented Muslims, if I can say it that way. But there also is a strong uh, secular strand of uh, of culture related. It's Islamic, but it's it's more secular, and we see these tensions in several Middle Eastern countries. I'm thinking of Egypt. I'm thinking of Turkey, etc. Sure. Um, talk a little bit about that, because uh, on the one hand, the goals of someone who comes out of a more secularized form of Islam mm-hmm. and the way they approach life is very different from their uh, Muslim neighbors, if I can say it that way, who are more – and I don't even know what the right word to use – more traditionally religious or more intensely religious about their faith. Sure. Uh, explain that those issues and tensions a little bit
0: well you know obviously one of the things that i've i've heard some pastors say is that you know we don't love islam but we love muslims we love the people we don't love the religion we love the people um in the middle east they don't separate the two Mm -hmm. whether you're secular or whether you're devout being a muslim is who you are so when we start talking negatively about Islam, they're automatically offended by you personally, and obviously we've seen that mm-hmm. in the media, because um, you've just offended who they are. And even though some of these people who are, who have gone out and rioted about certain things are probably not even very religious people, and with Islam, the, the hard thing about Islam is it's very hard to tell who's very devout and who's, who's really very secular because, um, I, and I've seen this happen with my own family you can go for several years where you're wearing, you know, as a woman, you're wearing the head covering, and you're following Islam, and you're doing all that, but one of the hard things about being a human being is you can't keep up. Mm-hmm. You just can't keep up, and so then they leave it for a while, and then they come back to it, and then they become devout, and so it's kind of an ebb and flow relationship with God and with Islam, is sometimes you're you're very, very devout, and other times you're really not devout at all. You're, you're not even praying at all. Yeah, and I think there is there is definitely a tension between the, the secular Muslims and the devout Muslims. And there's even tension between the devout Muslims themselves, mm-hmm. because, you know, one of the things, and, and it's it's the same thing, you know, throughout history, if you look at even Christianity and history, there's, there is tension between, you know, the Catholics and the Protestants, and then there's tension between um, even, you know, th- there's tension between you know, people who are that go to Bible churches and people that that are Baptists, right? And so you see that even in the Middle East, it does exist in the Middle East. And you know, one of the things that I think that binds Christians together is the issue of love mm-hmm. and loving one another, and that does not exist in Islam. Mm-hmm. There's the brotherly love that exists, but. Brotherly love is not the same as unconditional love. Uh, You know, last night I was reading 1 John, and I had to teach that in my Sunday school class, and and I thought, one of the marks of salvation is loving your brother. Mm Mm-hmm regardless of what they do and how they act, but with Islam, there's a whole lot of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth mentality, and so there isn't that unconditional love, and so there isn't that unity, and there is that tension, that constant tension between the sects and between the devout versus the secular. There's a lot of tension that goes on.
2: Okay, and you've raised a couple of things, and and I want to make sure I come back to one of them, but I want to pursue uh, one direction more in this in thinking about the distinctions within Arab culture we've talked about the secular and the devout but even among the devout you mentioned there are different sects within Islam why don't you tell us a little bit about that uh, about that dimension what are their names what do they represent that kind of thing
0: sure you know obviously the major ones are the sunnis and if i can uh, compare Sunnis to to any other, uh, to f- a, a form of Christianity, I would say that they are the evangel- the, ev- the evangelicals, hmm. because they follow the Word of God. You know, evangelicals follow the Word of God, and they try not to stray out of that. And so I would say Sunnis do that. Shiites, I would compare them to Catholics, because they add a different dimension and culture and tradition into their faith. So that's who the Shiites are. And then there's a whole lot of other uh, smaller sects like the um, um, the the Sufis, the Malachites, the you know, the, there's just a, a smaller you know versions of these different sects.
2: Now, if we think about this in terms of countries, do certain sects dominate certain countries? Absolutely. So how does that? How does roughly? How does that work out?
0: Well the majority of muslims if you were to look at the major the muslims as a whole i would say about 80% of them would be sunnis mm-hmm. so a lot of these um arab countries are dominated by by the sunni mm-hmm. faith then you have a stricter sect of Sunnis, like the Wahhabis, that live in Saudi Arabia. Okay, and so you have that in Saudi Arabia, but the majority are Sunnis. If you go to Iraq, the the huge tension in Iraq is that there's a lot of Sunnis and a lot of Shiites, and they're the ones who are fighting against each other. You go to Iran, they're mostly Shiites. So it just really depends on, you know, what country you go to. And so,
2: so the, the particular type of Islam. That you are related to then impacts the character of what Islam looks like in that country. Sure. And all right, well, uh, that's interesting. I've got I've got two more topics I want to be sure and cover, but I want to come to one that's very very important in understanding Islam, and that is let's talk about the role of we have we have another um, podcast that we've done where where Dudley Woodbury takes us through uh, Islam, and he talks about the role of submission and that kind of thing. So I think we have that covered in the other podcast, but the thing I want to zero in on here is to talk about I'm going to talk I'm going to ask a difficult question in some ways, the role of honesty mm-hmm. in Islam. Now here here's what I'm raising is there's a sense that we have in the West, that within Islam, there, in terms of the defense of Islam as a faith, sure. there's a kind of ends justifies the means. And so there's the ability to, to, what we would say, lie, deceive, et cetera, that's acceptable. That's not only acceptable, it's almost honorable. Can I have you talk about
0: that? So. Can, can I mention a passage in the Old Testament where, where lying was blessed okay. by God? Yeah. Um, the midwives, you know, were uh, commanded by Pharaoh mm-hmm. to kill the children, the Hebrew children. Right and um, they wouldn't do that and so pharaoh brought them in and said why haven't you done that and they said well you know these hebrew women they're just very rigorous Mm -hmm. we they have these kids and we don't even have time together and and it says in the old testament that god blessed them Mm -hmm. god blessed them so we have an example of that in the old testament where lying was not only honorable but it was even blessed by god Mm -hmm. um so i i think it's hard to You know one of the things about that i've noticed about religion or that you know in the bible and and in the quran is that you can take just about anything Mm -hmm. and justify just about anything Mm -hmm. that you want to do we've justified slavery uh, because of the passages that are in the new testament of slaves obey your masters and so we justified a whole century or two centuries of of slavery just because that's written in 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 the bible and so does Islam allow you to lie in a situation where it protects Islam or protects you or protects your life? Yeah, absolutely, it does that. You know, but we have an example of that in the Old Testament. Okay,
2: but if someone might come back and say, "Yeah, okay, that's one situation. I can see where you're protecting a life or something like that." But what then, about Rahab? Yeah, she exactly. Lied too. Exactly right. There are lots of it. lots of them. There, there are there are some examples, but the 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 issue that I'm raising has to do with how this then impacts the elements that are associated with terrorism and that kind of thing. Now, what ha- is there? Let me ask it this way: Is there a line in Islam between the kind of um, a lie given in self-defense to protect one's interests, or is what we would sometimes call terrorism um, put under that umbrella as well? And yet, at the same time, there's a sense of well, that's stretching the category a little bit. Um, uh, I know that even within some of the debate within among Muslims about how some of the terrorism has been against other Muslims, it has um, been, and and how that has that has uh, shaken the Islamic community because it's. Although there's a defense for it at one level, there's another sense in which this is coming against another principle of Islam. So sort that out for us.
0: Well, you know, obviously these terrorists, you know, I'll give you an example. Osama bin Laden justified everything that he did by saying, you know, according to the Sharia law, you can't go into war unless somebody's attacking you, so you should do it in self-defense. So he says, I'm coming in in self-defense because look at the way America is supporting Israel, and look at how many Palestinian kids are being killed as a result of that. So he's justifying it, and anybody, like I mentioned earlier, anybody can justify anything any time with any Bible verse, Mm -hmm. or any Quranic verse. And so, he'll justify that, and these terrorists will justify what they do, because they think that, you know, they're doing it in self-defense. And so…
2: So is um is there no difference between the way Christianity talks about love and honesty and that kind of thing and the kind of emphasis you get in Islam is there no difference at all or are, or is there a difference in the tone and feel of the two face?
0: Well, there there's definitely a difference in the tone of the two faiths. Obviously, we are told not to lie, and we are told not to, you know, in, in the Bible. And then again, you know, we've got verses in the Old Testament where, you know, people did blatantly lie mm-hmm. in order to protect certain people or to protect themselves or protect a nation or whatever it is. Um, so, I, you know, obviously, honesty is God's heart. Mm-hmm. And the issue of not lying is definitely God's heart. Has that been used by man? Absolutely, it's been used by man. Mm -hmm. Um, In in the Quran, it's permissible Mm -hmm. to lie um, in certain situations when you're in a war, when when there's a self-defense and situations like that. So the Quran particularly permits, or the Sharia law permits people to lie in those types of situations. I don't know that... There is a mandate in the in the Bible that says, yes, you can lie in a certain situation. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it has been used and I think I, I believe it's been blessed mm-hmm. even.
2: Okay. Now I'm gonna shift gears in time. you're probably
0: gonna call me a heretic no, no, after no, no, this. No, 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 not at all. <laughs> not at all. No, I
2: actually part of the point of the part of the point of our conversation here is to have people appreciate the nature of the way um, people are thinking both within within a faith and outside of a faith and and you know I mean every I mean even James talks about Rahab so uh, you know so we have these texts which Christian ethicists then uh, spent a long time sure interacting and explaining what's going on so no not a problem at all well, let's shift gears let's talk about your own personal uh, walk a little bit and let's talk about um, uh, let me I'm gonna I'm gonna do it this way um, how you saw yourself, when you were growing up in the context of Islam, and I'll give you the whole uh, train of thought here, so you can kind of we can kind of segment it, and then uh, how you encountered the Christian faith, and uh, what struck you about it as you were still in Islam, and then how you came to faith, and then on the other side, what are you doing now? So kind of in four parts. Uh,
0: um, I think when I was a Muslim. I believed that Islam was the true religion. And when I was, I believed that we all worship the same God, I believed that there was many ways to get to God, and I believed that if you were a good person that eventually God was going to forgive you and, and send you, to, that was my theology. Mm-hmm. Then a friend of mine invited me to attend a church, and you know, in in my thought process, I thought, well, God created Islam and Judaism and Christianity, and He just wouldn't be too horribly upset if I attend a Christian church. And so when I went to church, I was curious, and I my impression of the pastor was he's a nice guy, but he's just confused and misled because he doesn't know the truth about. Now, Islam. did that
2: happen here in the states, or did they, okay? That so this was after you had come to the states. Yeah, when
0: I came to the states, and so when she invited me to church. I was curious and so I began to read books I, I I don't know if this is a blessing or a curse sometimes it's a blessing sometimes it's a curse but God has given me an inquisitive mind mm-hmm. and so I was curious and so I wanted to understand why Christians believed what they believed and so I began to read books and I began to question you know read read the Quran and read the Bible and that's when I was confronted with the fact that both religions could not be right. Mm-hmm. One ha- one says one thing about Jesus, and the other one says a completely different thing about him. Islam says that Jesus was never crucified; that God sent someone to look like him to be crucified. And Christians clearly believe that he was crucified and died on the cross for their sins.
2: Yeah, it's a minor detail, isn't it? <laughs>
0: Just a, a little bit, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so, and the way to get to heaven, one was God came down to you, and another way is you get to God. And so. So I, I was all of a sudden. My curiosity became the quest for knowing the truth. I believed that there had to be one way to get to God.
2: That's interesting because you know the the uh, someone else who we're going to be interviewing on these podcasts, uh, uh, an Islamic man, had a very similar experience with his own curiosity about what he had heard about Christianity versus when he began to dig in, he realized, what I'd heard said about Christianity isn't quite what I'm hearing. And so that sent him on his own quest as well, and he eventually came to the Lord in the same. It sounds like in a very similar kind of way.
0: Yeah, and so for me, I I didn't see any visions and dreams. A lot of Muslims see visions and dreams, Mm -hmm. and God chose to send me down a different path, which Mm -hmm. is study and research. And, um, you know, I had studied about the Dead Sea Scrolls and how the Bible had been preserved all these years, because as a Muslim, I believe that the Bible has been changed. Right. And so, just l- looking at the preservation of the Bible and how, you know, it could have been very easily that the Quran was changed. And so, that th- there was a lot of doubt in my mind about Islam, and during that time, during my research, it just made me doubt Islam more and believe in Christianity more so. And so... I I, I thought to myself, you know, one question that I had was, how could God deceive people? I I couldn't reconcile in my mind, how could God deceive people and send a double for him Mm -hmm. to be crucified? Why would he deceive people and then try to rectify the situation 600 years later? Yeah. And so I believe that Jesus did die on the cross and uh, I was studying the book of Romans and in chapter 5 it says, through one man all men have fallen, and through one man all men have been saved, which is Christ, and that made sense to me that God would make a way rather than me try to climb an invisible ladder to try to reach him with my good works. So
2: is there no role for Adam in Islam?
0: Yeah, he was just a prophet.
2: He was just a prophet. But there's no there's no fall or sin or any condition that comes out of it as a result or anything like that.
0: Well that's that's very interesting that you say that because in Islam I had believed that, you know, Adam sinned and so God took him out of heaven. He had lived in heaven and he brought him to earth and that that God had a purpose for him to come down to earth so the earth can be populated and man can do good and then get to heaven by their good works, by following Allah and praying five times a day. Whereas it met with with Christianity, um, the whole idea of the sacrifice, where God committed the first sacrifice in the God, Garden of Eden, and He committed the last sacrifice with His Son Jesus Christ, that just blew my mind away.
2: Mm-hmm. So, so in, in in if I can say it this way, in Christianity and in Judaism, you have the picture of Adam leading to the fall and putting the condition on man, whereas in Islam, it's almost like it's the ladder. We we take Adam, uh, put him on earth, and give him a chance to reclaim himself, exactly. and you do it by the ladder. Exactly. Interesting. Yeah. Um, so what are you doing now?
0: Uh, well, I graduated from a Bible college and from seminary, and I'm currently serving uh, to help people understand Muslims and how to reach out to Muslims and uh, i also help with um, people who come to the united states that need help who are from who are muslims and um so that's what I'm currently doing.
2: So it's a so it's a it's a combination outreach ministry, really, both in terms of helping people get acclimated and in terms of helping them understand the Christian faith
0: mm-hmm. and equipping the church. Okay, well, let's talk about this
2: last dimension uh, of of your current life and ministry. How, how what advice would you give to people who say, "I have a Muslim neighbor" or "I have a mosque down the street"? Now, I didn't used to have. Um, how do, what's the best way to interact with and and relate to muslim people i realize it's a broad question but you, i mean you do this as a ministry so what would you say
0: you know one thing it has to begin with prayer it has to begin with the holy spirit convicting them and opening the hearts of muslims and opening our hearts i think one of the things that i start with as far as equipping churches is i say pray for yourselves pray for your heart if there's any misconceptions that you may have because you're equipped with the holy spirit they're not they have misconceptions of us we have misconceptions of them so start with prayer start with a lot of prayer and bathe everything that you do with prayer and ask the door, ask the Lord to open doors, because the most amazing thing that happens is when you ask God to open doors, you know what happens? Mm. He opens them. Mm-hmm. So, and and it, it begins and ends with relationships. Just start a relationship. One of the things that I tell people is, you build a relationship with a person, and along the way, you plant seeds about Christ and Christianity as the Lord opens the door for you.
2: Okay, so... Uh, and what kind? Of, you've already talked about some stereotypes that not everyone is a uh, is a terrorist. What other stereotypes do you think we should be aware of as we think about ministering to someone who comes out of an Islamic background?
0: Well, I, I think that's a, a really big one. I think the whole issue of women and um, women are oppressed. I've seen all these. I don't know if you have, Dr. Bach, these ridiculous emails about how women are treated in the Middle East mm-hmm. and. Um, and I have to just say, it doesn't matter. What really matters is not what I tell people is my rights in Christianity are not as important as my right in Christ. Mm-hmm. So don't look at what what you think Islam says about women. Don't I don't want I don't want people to focus on that. Focus on the fact that these people are lost souls and they need Jesus Christ.
2: Okay, so would a core level of advice be um, just interact and relate to someone out of the Islamic faith like you would try to relate to anybody?
0: Absolutely. you know when when Paul went to Athens, the first thing that he did was he bridged the gap he talked about some similarities. He didn't he didn't walk in there and say, well, you know, Allah and and God are all much different. He didn't say that to them. He said he complimented their religiosity. He said I can. I can tell that you're men of faith, or mm-hmm. that you're that you're very religious. And he says, you know, I've walked around, I've observed. So he studied what they believed. Mm-hmm. So give them an opportunity to talk about their faith. They're happy to talk about that. And once you give them that opportunity, that will open a door for you and afford you the opportunity to share about your faith. He says, I've walked around and says, I- I've noticed this unknown God, and he builds. A, a bridge, and he says, "Let me tell you about this unknown God. Let me make this unknown God known to you."
2: Yeah, that's an interesting point that you're making in terms of both building a bridge and having uh, having a conversation where you let people talk about their faith. I often say in doing evangelism that sometimes Christians tend to want to talk too quickly and too much, Amen. And, and that basically uh, when you build that relationship, allowing someone to talk about their religious experience and how they feel about God, et cetera, is very important because it's like you're being given a window into their heart. And when you get a window into someone's heart, um, that can help you know uh, what needs they may be expressing and where they place themselves and what they value, and that may actually help you think about how to engage. And so sometimes I think, particularly initially, we need to be slow to talk and quick to listen, Mm -hmm. so that we give people a time to tell their story. And by getting to know them, then we put ourselves in a better place to know how to minister to them.
0: Absolutely.
2: Well, Miriam, I want to thank you for coming in and and helping us think through. Uh, Islam and various aspects of life lived in the context uh, uh, of Islam. And uh, and I really uh, appreciate the conversation we've had an opportunity to have, and I trust that it has been helpful uh, to those who have been uh, listening today. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you.
1: Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well.
2: Well, I hope you found this interview with Miriam fascinating as I did, and it raises a variety of questions about how to think about engaging with Islam here in America. I think one of the more obvious things to consider is that not all Muslims are made the same. Some have grown up in a context in which they may well be open to hearing about uh, different ideas about God and faith, etc. And we certainly have a sense of that with this journey that we took with Miriam. It means that when we engage with Muslims, particularly here in the States uh, as we encounter them, it involves um, listening. Uh, sensitivity showing love uh, and reaching out to them as a possibility of of um, of getting to know them and building a relationship towards which Uh, you can share Christ. We need to recognize that we cannot generalize about people of Islamic background. There is a strand of Islam that certainly is radical and violent, but there also are people who have left the Middle East, who have come in many cases to the West because they wanted to leave uh, that form of Islam that threatened them, and they're interested in the possibility of hearing different ideas. So we need to be uh, open and aware of that possibility as we discuss uh, um, issues of faith and God with Muslims. We hope you've appreciated this interview, and we look forward to having you back on the table again.